So, here we are, God in three persons, the Trinity. We started this uh, the previous uh, time I was here, uh, three weeks ago, and we'll continue today, and we might do one more Sunday on it. I'm just not sure. We'll see how it goes today. And I'm going to also, um, I put a little note to myself to just quit at 9.15 and get some about 10 minutes of interaction with all of you, um, because I have been pushing and trying to get through more material and forgetting to take some time for for questions or enough time for questions and interactions, so we'll try to do that. Here we are talking about the question what is God's being like? And uh, especially, how can God be three persons and one God? And this is just a difficult question for us to understand. And the church went through the, the church that is Christians in the early period of the church. From the time the New Testament, well, Jesus died and rose again about 30 A.D. The New Testament was written from about 45 to maybe 90 A.D. From that time on for the next 200 years, people agreed that God is three persons and one God, but they tried to figure out how that could be and, and how to define that and how to explain it. And the more they thought about it, the more they thought, Man, this is really difficult. And they tried different ideas, and different teachers tried different ideas that sounded good at first, and then later they found, no, these aren't good. These are, these are kind of denying some essential aspect of the Trinity. So last week, <clears throat> no, last class, we went through um, this definition. God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and each person is fully God. <clears throat> and there is one God. If you believe those three things, then you hold to the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but the question is, how? You know, where do we find support for those in Scripture, and how do we put them together? And uh, so then, so we'll go on with that. The doctrine of the Scripture we said last of the Trinity we said uh, last class period is progressively revealed in Scripture. There's a partial revelation in the Old Testament. Even in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, indicating a plurality of persons in God. The people then didn't know that there was a, a trinity, but on wise reflection on that passage, they would have thought, ah, I think there is something here going on that we don't understand. There's God talking to God somehow. What does that mean? And uh, there, we went through more verses from the Old Testament last class period. Then there's a more complete revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament because we have a number of passages where you have uh, Jesus uh, being baptized, for instance, the Spirit of God descending on him, and God the Father speaking from heaven, three different persons doing different things at the same time. And um, uh, the Great Commission talks about the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there are other verses like that. And I talked about the fact that the word spirit is used for the Holy Spirit. Lord often used for God the Son and God often used for God the Father. Not completely, but there's some um, preference of usage for those two words, both of which refer to the Lord or the Lord God in the Old Testament. So then we came to the point of saying there are three statements that summarize the biblical teaching. God is three persons, so each person is distinct from the other two. Um, so the Son prays to the Father, the Father sends the Son, and things like that. And then each person is fully God. And we went through verses uh, demonstrating, of course, that the Father is God. No one disputes that. And then that the Son is also God. Uh, he, sometimes he is called God. He was called the Word 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's called God, um, and there is one God. And the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we went through passages on all of that. I didn't put up here. There were verses also on the deity of the Holy Spirit. That was for last last class. And there is only one God, and a number of verses like that. And so, um, so we come to the point where we say that God is three persons, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And what has happened through the history of the church is that there have been what I call simplistic solutions, where people say, oh, I can explain this, I've got this figured out, and what they do is they end up denying one of these statements. So God is three persons, each person is fully God, there is one God. Can you read that from the back row? Okay. Way over there, too? Okay. Okay. Now, let's say you just cross off that one. God is three persons. Then you're left with something that's easy to explain. Uh, Each person is fully God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is one God, but you don't have three persons anymore. So, so the picture looks like this. It's just one person, and, and you just, sometimes you look at the person, one, one perspective, and it looks like, oh, that's, he's acting like a father. One perspective, he's acting like a son. And one perspective, he's acting like the Holy Spirit. But there's just one person in God. And so you're denying that there are three different persons who can interact with each other in God. That's simple, but it's, it's a heresy. It's called modalism or Sabellianism. Modalism, and that I'll, I'll get to that in a few minutes, that God has different modes in which he acts, but he's not three persons. It, that's simple. You just have one person. Or, or if you deny the second one, you say, you say, okay, there are three distinct persons, but, but not every person is fully God. So what you have then is, let's see, we'll skip this one. We'll say God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is one God. So what people do in this case is say, the Father is God. And this smaller. And there are two created beings, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they're not really God. They're just lesser than less than God and they're created. So now you don't have any problem. You say, okay, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is one God, but you're denying that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God. That's the heresy called Arianism, after a man named Arius, A R I. U.S. and the Jehovah's Witnesses today fall in that category. They they say that the Son was created. Or I don't know if anybody actually does this, but you could say this. You could deny the third category, and you could say 
God is three persons, and each person is fully God, but you deny that there's one God, and then you get a picture like this. You get three gods. Three persons, and each one is full, each, each one is fully God. But that's, of course, polytheism or tritheism. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there's one God. So we don't want any of those solutions that deny one of these statements. We want to keep all three of these statements. Simplistic solutions must deny one strand of biblical teaching. By contrast, we must affirm all three. Um, Now, again, just by way of analogy, I have Jack and Pammy and Eric over here. Three persons. Each one's a full human being. That's no problem. Oh, you're one, yeah, but (laughs) I understand, Pammy. But but, uh, let's leave that aside for a minute. Okay. So um, Jack is a human being, Pammy's a human being, Eric's a human being. I've got three human beings. Each one's a complete human being, but I don't have one being. That's the problem, okay? Or I could say Jack is a husband, Jack's a father, and Jack is an elder at the church. So I've got three different roles for Jack, but I don't have three different persons because he's just still one person. So I say, I can't figure this out. How can God be one being but three different persons. I understand three persons. I understand one being. But I can't have them at the same time. That's the problem. Okay? Am I, am I making sense? All analogies have shortcomings. Ultimately, no analogy adequately teaches about the Trinity. And all are misleading in significant ways. And so... Um, well, analogy is, is a man who's a father, a husband, and an elder. That's an analogy. Three different roles, but it's still just one person. So that's a shortcoming. Or somebody says, well, what about a tree? You have a tree with the trunk, the leaves, and the roots, but one tree, three different parts. Oh, that's like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, why not, Mark? They're not all the same, right? Right, so uh, leaves have different characteristics than the trunk, and they have different characteristics than the root. And leaves aren't the whole tree. We're saying the Father is the whole of God, and the Son is the whole of God. So that doesn't work, and it's not personal. And, And I know there's a faint analogy with water, and that people can say water is like, you know, you can have water that's a block of ice. Uh, how can I draw an ice cube here? Big enough to see it. I don't know. That, that's an ice cube. So, okay, and then, and then you have water in liquid form, and then you have water in steam. That's fine, but um, no, drop of, no drop of water is all three of these. No one drop is all three at the same time, even though they can all three exist in one point at one time under certain conditions. But 
but no drop of water is all this, and they don't have all the same characteristics. And, of course, it's not persons. You haven't got the problem where, it's, where Mark is one person, but he's not, not three persons in one being. So it, it may be faintly helpful, but it really doesn't explain anything to us. So, so the analogies are kind of, they might, be, they might be a little bit helpful for teaching things to children or something, but, but uh, they really don't solve the problem. God eternally and necessarily exists as Trinity. All three persons were present at creation. So don't want people to think that the Trinity started in the New Testament. Jesus came on the scene or something like that. God has eternally been Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, uh, for instance, John 1.3, all things were made through him. The Father created through the Son. And at creation, the Son was present. There wasn't anything made without him, says John 1.3. In other words, this affirms that everything that exists was made by the Father through the Son. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was created was created by the power of the Father working through the Son, and the Son being the active agent in creation. That denies the Jehovah's Witnesses' claim that the Son was created. See, without him, there was nothing made that was made. And uh, talking about Christ again in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That means angels and things like that. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The sun was active <coughs> in And you see Genesis 1.2, of course, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was also present at the beginning of creation. Uh, more verses on this. The sun, uh, by his sun whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is the constant pattern. The Father creates through the Son. And here's the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. John, 5, John 17, 5 and 24. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before there was any creation, the Father and Son, the Father was sharing glory with the Son. There was interpersonal interaction between the Father and the Son. Elsewhere, he talks about the love that the Father had for him before the foundation of the world. Errors have come by denying any of the three statements summarizing the biblical teaching. Now I want to take a few minutes and talk about uh, some of the major heresies or major errors in the history of the Trinity that have come into the church. And it's good to know about these so we kind of guard against them. Number one, modalism claims that there is one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. Now, this heresy has three different names. Just, just why it does, I don't know, but it just does. It's sometimes called Sabellianism after uh, a teacher in the early church named Sabellius. And um, then it's sometimes called modalistic monarchianism because... Um, they're saying there's one monarch, God the Father, and then he appears sometimes as the Father in the Old Testament, he appears as the Son in the Gospels, he appears as the Holy Spirit in the Epistles, different modes, but just one person. And that is a... Oh, that's a... Um, that's an easy solution. There's no difficulty in figuring it out. It's like Jack being husband and father and elder at the same time. It, but it doesn't have three persons anymore. 
it gains its attractiveness from the idea that they want to emphasize that there is only one God. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Um, and uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. Um, but the shortcoming is it must deny the personal relationships within the Trinity. And by implication, it denies the independence of God. What do I mean by that? The problem is, how can the Father send the Son if the Father and the Son are the same person? How can, how can John 3.16 be true? How can God so love the world that he gave his only Son? How could that happen if there's only one person? And uh, they have to say that this is an illusion or just something for teaching us, uh, but not really the true nature of things. And I don't think that's representing the, the, um, the, the, the truth of those verses accurately. And how do you deal with Jesus praying to the Father? See, that's two different persons. Father, glorify in your presence with the glory of you before the world was made. Or, um, if it be possible, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. All those prayers to God the Father that Jesus gives, that means you have two persons. You can't have, one per you can't have a person praying to himself who would be... It would be deceptive for Jesus to do that. Now, are there modalists today? Yes, there are. Um, uh, the modalists today are a group called um, Oneness Pentecostals. They're not, they're not the Assemblies of God. They were kicked out of the Assemblies of God in 1916 because the Assemblies of God said, no, uh, we're classic Pentecostals and we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but uh, the United Pentecostal Church is the official name, and it's sometimes called Jesus only, and you will know when you meet one if, um, if someone comes and says, have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? Because they won't baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in the Trinity. Um... um Again, it gains, it gains its attractiveness by saying, well, there's one God, there's one God, there's one God, therefore there can't be three persons. And the problem is it's denying these verses of the Bible that show interaction between the Father and the Son, interpersonal interaction. Um, the, the question is whether um, the, what's called these oneness Pentecostals, whether they should be considered evangelicals today or not. And I don't... Um, and, and traditionally they have not. We have friends who were missionaries in, uh, in Nigeria a number of years ago, and they said it's very difficult for them. The only other missionaries that had any kind of belief in the Bible at all around them were from the United Pentecostal Church, and they're non-Trinitarian, and they didn't know whether they have fellowship with them or not, and that was a difficulty. About 15 years ago, the Evangelical Theological Society, that's the professional society for professors of Bible and theology, I'm part of that. The Evangelical Theological Society, added. we added to our statement of faith a statement that God is three persons to exclude the oneness Pentecostals from this group. There is a Bible college in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, 25, 28 years ago when I taught at Bethel College, we had a number of students coming uh, from that college over and kind of just trying to argue their points and, and stir up uh, some difficulty. I, um, what do I think about these people? Um, I think that um, people are inconsistent sometimes with what they believe and um, 
they can say that they believe a doctrine, but if they start reading the Bible, so much of the rest of the Bible comes to the defense of the of, of true aspects of biblical teaching that they can be genuinely born again, even though they've got some doctrines that would ultimately lead to denying uh, the, their salvation. They maybe are not consistent in following through on that. So they may be personally better than their doctrine would allow them to be. But um, but this, this view has not been the view of the history of the church. I'm troubled that there's a magazine called Charisma. It's really popular in charismatic and Pentecostal circles. And the editor, J. Lee Grady, has been pushing for saying, why do we keep these people out of evangelical circles? Why aren't they considered evangelicals even if they deny the Trinity? And I think that it, he doesn't understand the difficulty that, it, that this is leading to. What happens is, if people deny the Trinity, deny the personal relationships between uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then ultimately you, you run into a lot of trouble with, um, with salvation because uh, um, why did Jesus die? Who accepted the payment for the penalty for our sins? If, if there is a person in God, you don't have the Father distinct from the Son to put the judgment of our sins on Christ or to accept the judgment of our sins. So salvation is at stake. And the independence of God is at stake. When we talked about uh, a while ago about the independence of God, I said God didn't need to create us because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed as three distinct persons. And therefore there was fellowship eternally among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, God doesn't need the creation for anything. But if you only have one person in God, then God needs us for fellowship. He's lonely. And that, I think, attacks the independence of God. There are other things that happen ultimately as well. Um, and they don't work themselves out in, a, in the thinking of a, of a denomination or a religion or a cult. They maybe don't work themselves out in the first decade or two, but eventually they work themselves out. Ultimately, I think also the wonderful, a wonderful aspect of the Christian faith is that we have three persons, and each person acts differently, and there's one God. What that means is it guarantees that God can have a universe in which he delights in diversity as well as unity. I just look out at you and I see a whole lot of different colors of clothing. I see different shapes of faces, different styles of hair, different uh, expressions. And uh, if I stop to think about who you are, I see different occupations and interests and personalities. Well, how can we be so different and yet be one church? How can we be different and have unity? The way of the world is to say, the way we can have unity is you be the same as me, and everybody should, and you get dictators in power who try, like this guy in Korea, tries to force everybody to wear the same uniform and, and just do the same thing and think the same thing. And that's the way of the world, to try to force everybody to be the same. God's way is to delight in diversity, and it makes unity, and we can have unity out of that. That's why... I am not afraid 
to yield my life completely to God and say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. I give control of my life over to you. You are Lord. And I don't fear that he's going to make me just like John or just like Mike or just like anybody else because God delights in making people different and still being one. And that is anchored in the Trinity because God himself has three different persons and yet complete unity. Am I making sense there? So the Trinity as a wonder doctrine, unequaled by any other religion in the history of the world, and it allows us to delight in unity and diversity at the same time in the world. You go over to other religions, you go over to Buddhism, for instance, where the goal is to abolish or deny all the distinctive desires that you have and make yourself just one with the universe. It wants unity, but it won't tolerate diversity. You're just trying to blend in with the universe. Or Islam. Islam doesn't have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so it can't tolerate diversity. It has one God, the Father, and everybody's got to be the same, and... That's enforced, in many cases, by, by, um, by, uh, by physical force to make everybody pray at the same time, act the same way, do the same thing. I think that the fact that there's no trinity in Islam, that it has lot, much less tolerance of diversity among people. But the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means that that works itself out in diversity of gifts, but one body in Christ, difference of interests, and, one, uh, and, and yet unity. And people can be different in families, and yet have unity, and that doesn't threaten us. So I think that um, modalism, denying that there are three persons in God, is a serious heresy, and I don't think it should be considered part of evangelical Christianity. Okay? The next heresy, and this is really the big one that took, took a long, long time in the church, uh, through most of the 300s or the 4th century AD, there was this controversy over Arianism. Arianism denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Arianism, my Arianism looks like this in a diagram. Arianism says, eternally there's been God the Father. And then a long time ago, before God created the rest of the world, God created the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they are similar to God. They're great heavenly beings, similar to God, but they're not equal to God. And the Arians would say, there's, there's this kind of sentence in Arianism. Let me get, let me, let me, let me erase this. There was when he was not. 
well, that's a strange sentence, you say. What they mean is there was a time when he was not, when, when God the Son was not. So if you go back on a timeline in the history of the world, here's, here's the New Testament, here's the Old Testament, here's Genesis 1 with creation. And Arianism would say, back sometime before creation, there was the Father only and there was no Son and Holy Spirit. There was a time when the Son was not. Now that's Arianism. So there's a 4th century bishop named Arius who taught that God the Son was created. And he looked at these verses that talked about God's only begotten Son. King James Version, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does the word begotten mean? Well, only begotten in Greek is monogenes, monogenes, monos meaning one, and they thought that this word genes, the second half of it, had to do with a Greek term ganao that can mean beget or bear. Uh, bear would be uh, the woman's role in giving birth to a child. Beget would be the father's role in giving birth to a child. And so they thought only begotten meant that somehow in the analogy of a father, God the Father begat or created the Son. And so, of course, back in the 4th century, they didn't have the King James Version. They had Greek text and Latin translation. But the argument was that this word monogenes meant begotten, meant um, that God the Father somehow created the Son, and that that's what only begotten meant. And the church was with this for a long time, up till the Ninth Creed in 325 A.D. And they thought, we're not sure what only begotten means, we're not sure what it means, we're not sure what it means, but whatever it means, it doesn't mean created. And they said, Arius, you're wrong. Okay? And basically, they ended up saying, only begotten means there was a father-son relationship eternally, in the Trinity, but it didn't mean created. We'll get to the Nicene Creed that, that ends up saying begotten, not made. And that's how they denied this, that it was created. Okay, modern research in the 20th century, however, into the meaning of the word monogenes, I think convincingly shows, and I have some long discussion in, uh, in my systematic theology book on around... Oh, it's around page 243 or something, if you have that book and you want to read more. And then there's a long appendix, Appendix 6, discussing this word some more. I think it means unique or one of a kind, not only begotten. And going down the road of thinking that that has to do with begetting uh, got, got people confused. Uh, they, the rest of the Bible protected the truth of Scripture. So they said whatever begotten means, it just has to do with, they thought it had to do with a relationship. It didn't have to do with being created. But um, I think it was probably an unnecessary controversy anyway, because most translations now will say he gave his only son, not his only begotten son. Um, I could go into more detail on that, but I think I'll go on. The Arians also used Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, they say, wait a minute, firstborn of all creation? Doesn't that mean he was born? Doesn't that mean he was created? 
And I think the answer to that is, and the church in the fourth century in dealing with this said, no, it doesn't mean created. And there are a couple of good explanations. One is, this just refers to Jesus being firstborn when he became a man, became became the world. But I think a better explanation is firstborn overall creation, that is, one who has the rights of the firstborn. And in an ancient biblical family, the firstborn would have the rights of rule in the family. And so firstborn of all creation means he has the rights of ruling over all creation. Not that he was ever born, but he has that, that heritage or that privilege. And then Colossians used Proverbs 8 that claimed wisdom was created. And I've got a discussion of that as well. Um, I think Proverbs 8, where it talks about wisdom, is just a poetic personification. To you, O men, I call. My cry is to the children of men. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. This is Proverbs 8.1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? And it's in contrast with the, the woman folly or foolishness that, that continues to entice these young men to turn aside um, like they would turn a prostitute. And in contrast to foolishness, now wisdom is pictured as a woman that's saying um, to you, O men, I call, learn prudence, learn sense. I will speak of noble things. Uh, take instruction instead of silver. Take knowledge rather than choice gold. Wisdom is better than jewels. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And now, later in that verse, it says, in that passage, it says, Verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, Proverbs 8:22, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up. Um, there's a technical question here of the meaning of Proverbs 8:22. I think it just means the Lord possessed me, but some people have translated it, the Lord created me. Now, if it's personification of wisdom, no problem. It's not saying that God created, the, the Father created the Son. But when they thought that the Proverbs 8 wisdom referred to God the Son, then they said he's created. Well, again, I think that's a misinterpretation of Proverbs 8. I think it's just talking about a poetic image of wisdom, um, not about God the Son as wisdom. So those were the passages the Arians used. But you see, also the appeal of Arianism was to say, this is simple. God is three persons. But I don't have to say that each person is fully God or each, or that there's one being with three persons in the one being. They're saying there are three separate beings. And then you don't have any difficulty with it. And that was probably the appeal. Arianism was defeated at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And again in 381 AD, it, the, the Council of Nicaea was reaffirmed and another paragraph was added to the Nicene Creed. And what the Nicene Creed said was this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Okay, they were going to quote what they thought was the right understanding of John 3. Begotten Father before all worlds. So they're saying, this never happened. It was before all ages. But then, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And so when they said not made, they said, this is wrong. Arius, I'm going to put a big X over that just to be sure that we agree that it's wrong. When they said begotten, not made, 
They said that that idea is wrong. And then they said, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, this word in Greek, homo usios, homo meaning same, usios meaning being. So they're saying here in the Nicene Creed, and the Arians could not say this. They're saying in the Nicene Creed, Homo, same, usios, being. They are saying that God looks like this. There is the being of God. And in the being of God, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here's the catch. How much of the Trinity, how much of God is the Father? The whole of this circle is the Father. Well, then how much is the Son? We've got one being. So we have to say the whole of the circle is also the Son. How can that be? Well, that's the question we can't figure out. But when you say the Son is fully God, I think you have to affirm this, that there are three sons, and I can't draw it because I can't, I can't show that the whole circle is the Father and the whole circle is the Son all at once. I don't know any way to draw that. But when you say same being, homo usios, that is saying that the Father and the Son have the same being, being of the same being as the Father. And... And the, the Arians said, hey, you know what, guys? You're being too picky about this. We're going to say, we'll say something really close to that. We'll say, homoi usias. And homoi usias means similar. Similar being. Hey, guys, we believe the Son is a great heavenly being. He's greater than everything in creation. Why don't you just let us in? Won't that be acceptable? And the church said, no, you've got to say same being. You can't say similar being. If you say similar, you're denying that there's one God or there's one being in God. You're denying that, and you're denying that the Son is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God. And so there was this dispute over really one letter. See, the letter I in Greek, it's the letter iota. Homo usios, same being. Homo usios, similar being. The church said, no, we're not going to let you affirm that. If you want to be part of the church and be accepted and have teaching roles and governing roles in the church, you've got to say he's the same being, homo usios, with the Father, by whom all things were made. Later in the lesson, I've got the whole Nicene Creed on the slide so we can say this together. Not, I mean, some, a lot of churches do this. Maybe some of you have come from churches that do this. We don't do it as often, but it's a good creed, and it's probably worth, worth us doing that. Okay, so being of one substance with the Father, or the same substance, or same being, you could say that different ways in English, by whom all things were made. So the, home, the Nicene Creed affirmed homo usios, same being, substance, not homo usios, similar or substance. That was 325 A.D. There was a man named 
Athanasius. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. And he was bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, which was a very important church in the early church. And Athanasius, he, he held on to this true Trinitarian teaching. He was bishop, uh, he was secretary at the Council of uh, Nicaea in 325. He, he became bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, and he defended the doctrine of the Trinity. However, the Arians lost in 325, but they didn't give up. You know, like the Terminator that keeps coming back in the movie or something like that? Uh, the, the bad guy that keeps reappearing, you think he's dead, and he doesn't. The, the Arians kept fighting, and they kept gaining control in different churches and different areas. And so from 325 to 381, there's argument, 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 and discussions and debates and things written back and forth. And Athanasius was the leader of the forces that were defending the doctrine of the Trinity. And he wouldn't give up, and he said, this is important, the future of the church is at stake. And I'm going to read a paragraph from my book about Athanasius. Although many church leaders contributed to the gradual formation of the correct doctrine of the Trinity, the most influential was far, by far was Athanasius. He was only 29 years old when he came to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Not an official member, but secretary to Alexander, then the bishop of Alexandria. Yet his keen mind and writing ability allowed him to have an important influence on the outcome of the council, and he became bishop of Alexandria himself in 328 AD. Though the Arians had been condemned at Nicaea, they refused to stop teaching their views, and they used their considerable political throughout the church to prolong the controversy for most of the rest of the fourth century. Athanasius became the focal point of the Arian attack, and he devoted his entire life to writing and teaching against the Arian heresy. And now I'm quoting here from um, New International Dictionary of the Christian Church. He was hounded through five exiles, embracing 17 years of flight and hiding. But by his untiring efforts, almost single-handedly, Athanasius saved the church from pagan intellectualism. The Athanasian Creed, which bears his name, is not today thought to stem from Athanasius himself, but it's a clear affirmation of Trinitarian doctrine. So he, he became ultimately a real hero in the fourth century. And in 381 AD, then there was another church council where leaders from all different sections of the church got together, and they added a paragraph onto the Nicene Creed as it existed to affirm the full deity of the Holy Spirit as well. So here's the paragraph they added. And I believe in God Almighty and in um, Jesus Christ, his Son. And then, yeah, how did I get the right words here? I believe in God the Father. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. And now they added, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Now, if you worship and glorify the Holy Spirit, that means he's also God, who spoke by the prophets. So um, uh, that was the Nicene Creed added to in Constantinople in 381. And that's the, uh, the, the, view, the position that it has today. Now, since that time, there was only one church then, but then the Orthodox Church split off in the Eastern Church in 1054, 
and the Protestant churches split off in 1517 and onward, but Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches since 381 have all affirmed the doctrine of Trinity, with one minor exception with the Greek Orthodox Church having to do with the Holy Spirit. But they, they believe in the Trinity, but just something about the relationships in the Trinity, there's a little difference. But basically, this has been the teaching of Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic churches since 381 AD. Um, and people who have denied it have eventually all fallen away from the Christian faith. There are two other wrong views. Is this boring? You're okay. <laughs> okay. There are two other wrong views. Um, oh, oh, are there Arians today? Oh, yes, they knock at your door and they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses use the same verses and the same arguments. They perpetuate the same mistake as the Arians did. Um, but otherwise, it, there, but there are no Arians um, sort of in any orthodox um, uh, churches or truly Christian churches today. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, because of their view, would be called a cult. How do you handle a Jehovah's How do I handle a Jehovah's Witness when I come to the door? I'll just say one thing here, Pammy. Um, sometimes I say, I think this conversation is going to be a waste of both our time. <laughs> but but uh, I haven't had one for a long time. But, but what I, when I, uh, sometimes I've said this. Um, you're welcome to come in if we can talk about only one question. How can my sins be forgiven and how can I be saved? Because see, they hold to salvation by works. But I want to, I want to play ball in my home field. Uh, where, and that's where we know, we know the gospel verses, and you can talk about salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. And they'll have some answers to that, but they won't be very good ones. So, uh, Because I'm interested in that person's salvation who's coming to my door and that I can be forgiven by trusting in Christ for, for forgiveness of sins. Their little ob obscure disputes about the doctrine of the Trinity turn on technical things that they're make, arguing about Greek grammar. And I can argue that with them, but they don't know what they're arguing. They're just doing pre-programmed answers. So I, I, think, um, I think that's not a good use of my time or their time. So, Talk about salvation. Good uh, a good, good thing to talk about. Okay, let's see. I had a note to myself. To stop at 9.15 and take interaction with you, which means this is going to hold over till the following week. Um, Wayne. It means he's not fully God. See, if he's created, he's a creature. And so he's not eternal, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's not um, infinitely anything, uh, infinitely wise or omnipresent or any. He's not fully God, he's a creature, right? maybe a greater creature, but he's like a great angel or something like that. If he's not fully God... I think there, well, you deny that talk about in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or, <clears throat> you, Lord, laid the foundation of the world and the, of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's Hebrews 1. <clears throat> Many other passages that I had in the outline earlier, talking about Jesus being fully God. <clears throat> the people who deny that Jesus is fully God, their system leads them to find another way for salvation. Because if Jesus is not fully God, how can he bear the penalty for all our sins? 
And that's why it's not surprising that the Jehovah's Witnesses base their salvation on works and especially going around and witnessing to people. Um, that's their way of salvation because they don't have a Jesus who's fully God and, and man and thereby can pay for all our sins. Is that, is that making sense, Wayne? Okay. A lot is at stake here. I, I, don't, I forgot your name in the back. Chuck? Yes. That means the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. In the Old Testament. Yeah, and th there's, um, there's more to it. Uh, there's a few, few more words there at the end that I don't have right there. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, Andrea. Yeah. What analogy would I use in speaking to children about this? Yeah, ten and under. You know, I might just go back to saying, oh, God is, there's one God, but he's three persons. I just say that. Okay? And, and I, and, I mean, people can kind of understand that without trying to think through, oh, how can that be? Okay, just, just state it that way so they're kind of not learning. I don't know. I'm not sure if I would use other analogies. Yeah, maybe the picture. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you see, there's, there's another thing that I didn't say here, and that is all creation shows us something of God. So a family, a father, a mother, and a, and a, a daughter or a son, I, they're... The three or four or five persons, there's one family. Well, it's kind of like that. See, a church, many members, but one church. It's kind of like that. So, in other words, everything kind of, everything where there's unity and diversity is another way of saying, oh, the, the Trinity is kind of like that. So I guess I wouldn't mind doing that, too. It's just like, how do we know what God is love? Well, we see human love, and we say God's love is kind of like that. How do we know God's power? Well, we see human power, we say God's power, well, it's much greater, but it's kind of like that. So God made the whole universe to show something of what he's like. Okay, Mark. Yeah, do the Mormons fall under Arianism? You know, I really, I'm not an expert on Mormonism, but as I understand it, they've got a completely different view of who God is, and they just have to be a, kind of like us, but but than us. And so you're in a whole different category of thinking. The Arians, Arians have a father who is infinite and eternal and all those attributes. They just didn't have the son sharing those attributes. The Mormons don't fall in one of those categories. They've got just they're a whole different system, different view of God. What else? Okay, what's your name? Sally. Sally. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When we're in the new heavens and new earth, uh, uh, what will the role of the Holy Spirit be? Since we won't need a comforter or a teacher, I think we'll probably always need a teacher because um, God is omniscient. He knows everything, and we're never going to get there. So, <laughs> um, and I don't know about a comforter. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, a helper, advisor. But I think so the Holy Spirit will still live within us to guide us and direct us, uh, as he does today. I'm not sure what else. 
I'm trying to think in Revelation, uh, but I'm not sure it. I'm not sure that it helps me. I, I don't know what else. The Holy Spirit's work in general, from Genesis 1-2 onward, seems to be to preserve and sustain uh, and be, be, be wonderfully present in God's creation. Um, Father plans and directs, the Son carries out, the Holy Spirit fulfills and preserves and sustains. So maybe something in that area. Okay. Well, I've got about three more minutes. I, I put a note to myself to quit earlier and just allow a little more interaction. So I'm going to try to do that at 9.15 each time and not crowd the last bit of the outline in. Pammy? Ah, good. Yeah. yeah. I've got this bishop, Arius. Uh, he's the bishop. And it gives rise to... Aryanism, and then what about the Nazis and their desire for an Aryan race? Was that A R Y I A N or A R Y A N? I think it's it, it's different. I think there's no relationship, but I'm not sure I'm spelling that right. There's no I. A R Y A N. Aryan. Okay. Okay, good, because they sound the same in English. Okay, what else? What's your name? Patrick? Yes. Okay. Okay, Patrick, uh, and again, for the tape, I just kind of try to repeat a summary of the question. As witnesses view salvation by work because they don't have a son who is fully God to bear our sins, that makes sense. But, but Patrick is saying, well, what about the Roman Catholic view that has faith plus some kind of works, as we would see it, um, uh, having to do with the sac use of the sacraments? Um, is that, that is not based on the same origin because Roman Catholics and Protestants agree as I understand 100% on the doctrine of the Trinity uh, and both would use the Nicene Creed uh, and both would say the son is of the same being or same substance as the father and he was never created he always existed and so um, would affirm three persons and one God so it would be other things in the Catholic, in the development of Catholic teaching through history that's led to a different view, and we agree. Catholics and Protestants agree to disagree on how we're justified or made right by God. Um, but that's another, a few months from now. Okay. Um, what else? What else? I've got one more minute. Okay, um, Clyde, and then we're going to be done. No, I cover the difference on the Orthodox Church. Um, um, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. That's the first slide for next week. They thought that the Pope was wrong in ten, a little bit before 1054 in adding the phrase, and from the Son. And it has to do with the relationship between the Father and the Son. It, it has to do with the relationship between the Father and the Son. I mean, sorry, it has to do with the relationship between the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity before creation. It's a really obscure point of doctrine, and it split the whole church into east and west in 1054 AD. We'll pick up on that next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, it, it, 
It's amazing that you tell us this much about yourself and that we can that we can sit here and talk about you, the great and infinite and eternal and omniscient God, the one who is holy and pure and good above all our understanding above the heavens, and yet you dwell with us, Lord, and you enable us to speak with you, Father, and to call you Father, and, and, and Jesus, our Savior, we can speak to you and pray to you, and Holy Spirit, uh, with the church from 325 A.D. and onward, we can say that you, with the Father and Son, are to be worshipped and glorified, O Holy Spirit. And so we thank you that you are our comforter and guide as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God three in one, we worship you, we exalt you, we give you praise and glory for your, your, the excellence of your being, far greater than we can understand. Amen.